Tis the season to shine with H&M. Discover the holiday collection and find fashionable pieces for your wardrobe or for under the tree. Get inspired and dazzle with this year's glam. From tuxedo styles, bow detailed pieces, impressive prints, and more. From unforgettable looks to unforgettable gifts. With fashion finds to home decor, find it all at H&M. Treat your loved ones and yourself this season. Shop in-store or at hm.com. Hello everyone, and welcome back to the History of Africa. I'm your host, Andy. Last week, we left off with the death of Horus Aha, Egypt's second pharaoh. This week, we'll examine what little we know about the rest of Egypt's first dynasty, and learn how Egypt's first line of pharaohs met its end. Without further ado, let's begin. Episode 5, The Best Pharaoh You've Never Heard Of. If you listened to last week's premium episode, you'll know that after Horus Aha died, the rule did not immediately pass to his son, Jer. Rather, it passed to his mother and possible wife, Nithotep. Nithotep ruled as a temporary regent until her grandson was old enough to become pharaoh in his own right. While she reigned, though, she was treated like any other pharaoh. That is to say, she was incredibly revered and respected. Her reign ended after her grandson came of age, and she died soon after. We know pretty much nothing about how successful her reign was, and practically nothing about the details of her reign at all. However, after her death, she was buried in what was Egypt's most luxurious tomb at the time, which might indicate that Egypt was especially prosperous at the time of her death. Now, before we continue, I want to talk a little bit about what happened to pharaohs after they died. If there's one thing we all associate with Egypt, it's pyramids. And while pyramids won't be built until a couple of episodes in the future, the precursor to pyramids is being created right now. These structures called mastabas, take the form of rectangular piles of mud bricks, sloping slightly upwards until they reach a flat roof at the top. Basically, imagine if someone took a small pyramid and then sliced off the top two-thirds of it. Early mastabas were essentially a house built for a dead person, with a layout resembling that of a standard house from that time, though this design would eventually be scrapped for a new design that was harder for grave robbers to navigate. At the center of the mastaba was the sarcophagus room, where the body of the pharaoh was laid to rest. This room was also packed with many of the pharaoh's worldly treasures, furniture, and servants. Yes, you heard that right, servants. During the early dynastic period, the royal attendants were killed and buried with the pharaoh so that they could continue to serve in the afterlife. If you'd like to learn more about the practice of human sacrifice in early Egypt, and how this practice would eventually come to be abolished, that will be the topic of this week's premium episode for our supporters on Patreon. Anyways, little is known about the rule of Jer. He ruled for an incredible 40 years, though, which implies that his rule was most likely stable and prosperous, as unsuccessful rulers rarely last that long. Jer engaged in multiple military campaigns in both Nubia and the Near East. The rule would pass on to his son, Jet. Jet would rule for a much shorter time than his father, only 10 years. His name is likely related to Wajet, the protector deity of Lower Egypt. This might indicate that his reign, or the reign of his father, saw an increase in the power and influence of Lower Egypt within the First Dynasty. Little else is known about his reign, though I do want to make a quick note about what happened after his death. Soon after his death, Jet's Mastaba in Abydos was almost immediately destroyed. This could indicate that his rule was unpopular, or that the city saw a surge in instability after his death. Jet's heir, Den, was too young to rule when his father passed. His wife, and possibly also his sister, was a woman named Marineth. She would, like her great-grandmother, 
play the role of regent until Den was old enough to rule for himself. Unlike Nithotep, though, Merenith was never technically the pharaoh herself. And while her name is often included in Egyptian king's lists, it usually isn't surrounded by the royal serech associated with the pharaoh. Instead, she went by a more humble title, Mother of the Pharaoh. Like the rest of the First Dynasty, she was buried in Abydos. Interestingly, like the name of her great-grandmother, Merenith also implies a connection to Neith, the goddess of weaving and war. She won't be the last queen of Egypt with Neith in her name, either. It's tempting to chalk this up to being a coincidence, but I think it's more likely that powerful women in Egypt were able to attach a layer of prestige to themselves by associating their name with that of such a martial goddess. The length of Merenith's rule is unknown, but it's likely that she continued to have a strong influence on her son even after he took the throne for himself. You wouldn't know about her not being a pharaoh on a technicality if you only looked at her tomb, though. Merenith's tomb is actually larger than that of her husband, and even contains the oldest example of a solar boat, a ship that would be buried with Egyptian pharaohs to aid their transportation into the afterlife. Merenith stepped down from power after her son, Den, came of ruling age. Den is the last good pharaoh of the First Dynasty. If you watched the previous episode, you'll remember that I stated that Upper and Lower Egypt were still two separate kingdoms, which just happened to be ruled by the same king in an ancient version of a personal union. Well, this status quo had remained true throughout the rules of Nithotep, Gen, Jet, and Merenith. Den, however, would put an end to this practice. Those previous pharaohs used two separate titles, King of Upper Egypt and King of Lower Egypt, depending on the circumstances. In Upper Egypt, they wore the white bowling pin-shaped crown of Upper Egypt, and while in Lower Egypt, they wore the curly red crown of Lower Egypt. Essentially, each early pharaoh had two related but distinct jobs. Den did away with this practice, and united his title to become the first pharaoh to call himself King of Upper and Lower Egypt. This might seem like unimportant semantics, but this new practice did away with the old status quo of one Egypt, two systems. Egypt was no longer two states with one ruler, it was now one state with one ruler. In place of the two crowns of Upper and Lower Egypt, Den wore a single crown, which the white crown of Upper Egypt was fitted inside a red crown of Lower Egypt. Every pharaoh after Den would continue the practice of wearing this double crown. He also introduced the wearing of the Nemes, a striped headdress worn by Egyptian pharaohs. If you've ever seen the famous golden mask of King Tutankhamun, then the Nemes should be familiar to you. It's the headdress he wears around the back of his head. The time of Den's reign was a golden age of innovation in ancient Egypt. During this period, the first formal system of numerical writing and hieroglyphs was introduced. This meant that things like years and tax records, obviously incredibly important to the operation of such a kingdom, could now be written in hieroglyphs. This period also saw massive innovations in Egyptian religious practice. Den introduced the worship of the ancient bull, in which an especially strong bull from the city of Apis would be designated as the son of the goddess Hathor, and be subjective to incredibly devoted worship. Den also introduced a new holiday which would last throughout the entirety of Egyptian history, known as Heb Sed. This holiday was meant to celebrate the continuation of the rule of the pharaoh, and was celebrated with a feast every 30 years. The pharaoh would sprint back and forth between two large stele to prove his continual potency and physical fitness. Heb Sed is an important holiday to Egyptologists as well, as it provides a fairly accurate way to date how long the rule of the pharaoh lasts. Finally, 
Many of the oldest funerary practices established in the Book of the Dead are attributed to Den, as are many of the processionary rituals which would long be associated with the pharaoh. These rituals would not only be practiced long after Den himself passed, but would continue to be practiced until the widespread introduction of Christianity in Egypt in the 3rd century AD. Talk about leaving a legacy behind. To make his rule even more impressive, this golden age of innovation did not occur during easy, peaceful times, but rather during times of great hardship and strife. Egyptian records from Den's reign make their first mention of the Iunedi, or Bow People. These mysterious people, completely unknown outside of Egyptian records, would become an ongoing problem for the pharaohs of the First Dynasty. During Den's reign, they migrated into the Sinai Peninsula, and began raiding the trade caravans that crossed back and forth between Egypt and Canaan, and even occasionally invaded the Egyptian settlements on the fringes of the Nile Valley. Den decided to put a stop to this practice, launching a full-scale war against the Iunedi. An artifact known as Den's Ivory Label shows Den in the smiting pose, similar to the stance portrayed on the Narmer palette. In one hand, he holds a mace high, ready to swing down, and in the other hand, he grasps the hair of a kneeling enemy. Like on the Narmer palette, a falcon, the symbol of Horus, watches approvingly, though this time he is joined by the symbol of the desert god, Set. I believe that the inclusion of Set on this artifact is meant to show that Den was not just the master of the land of Horus, Egypt, but was also the master of the land of Set, or Egypt's surrounding deserts. Den would lead two more military campaigns in the Sinai, and emerge victorious in all three. If a foreign war wasn't hard enough to manage already, Den also had to manage the onset of a plague, one of the oldest disease outbreaks in recorded history, though how successful he was in this task is unclear. Den died after ruling for more than 40 years, and proved himself to be the most effective pharaoh since his great-great-grandfather, Narmer. Even his place of rest showcases the innovativeness of his rule. Before Den, mastabas were built in a peculiar manner. First, the pharaoh would be laid to rest with their possessions and servants in a pit, and then the mastaba's structure would be built on top of this pit. Den's mastaba, though, was built differently. It was built before he died, and featured a spiral staircase down which the body of the pharaoh would be lowered. This innovation would prove crucial to later Egyptian pharaohs, as it allowed them to plan out their tomb before they died, rather than rely on their successor to build it for them. Therefore, the later practice of building increasingly magnificent mastabas, and eventually the practice of building pyramids can, like many other things in Egyptian history, be attributed in part to Den's rule. While writing this episode, I was astounded by just how important Den's rule was to Egyptian history. I looked up some pop history top ten lists of the best pharaohs in Egyptian history, as a sort of measuring stick of the mainstream understanding of ancient Egypt. And Den was listed on none of them. So, in the future, if someone asks you who was the most underrated pharaoh of ancient Egypt, you can say you know the answer. Part of the reason why Den is so unknown relative to his accomplishment is that he was partially erased from history by his successor, Anajib. Who Anajib was is a mystery. He may have been the son, brother, or rival of Den. His rule is not very well attested to, but what little we know does not reflect well on him. Anajib has two separate Hebsed stones attributed to his name, which at first seems to imply that he enjoyed a long, prosperous rule. However, there is strong evidence that these stones were in fact lifted from Den's tomb, 
and that Den's name was erased on them, and Onajeb's name was written in its place. Sort of like how people steal images from DeviantArt today. Onajib's rule was contentious, and he had to deal with near-constant rebellions throughout his reign, especially in Lower Egypt. One of the few depictions of Onajib is him completing the Hebsed ritual of running between the stones, but this depiction has been graffitied with the marking of a single word, calamity. This points to some terrible disaster taking place during his reign. In the end, his rule did not last long, likely lasting less than nine years. Onajib was buried in Abydos with the rest of the First Dynasty kings, in an incredibly small and unimpressive mastaba. His successor was Semerhet, a man who we know little about. Egyptologists once believed Semerhet to be a usurper. This is because, much like the pharaohs, some important royal advisors and officials had impressive tombs. In these tombs, they would usually brag about their service to the pharaoh, as this was seen as a great honor. Unlike his predecessors, though, Semerhet is not attested to in any of the tombs of these royal officials, showing that nobody wanted to be associated with his reign. Combined with the fact that he had a habit of erasing Onajib's name and replacing it with his own on artifacts, scholars long assumed that this meant that he was a pretender. However, this theory has fallen out of favor recently, due to later pharaohs listing him as a legitimate predecessor. It's more likely that this lack of attention from royal officials comes from the fact that Semerhet had a short and unsuccessful reign, likely lasting less than eight years. My personal speculation is that he was more of a reverse usurper, that he had a legitimate claim to the rule of Den, and that he retook the throne from Onajib. This lines up well with the speculation that Onajib himself may have been a usurper, and the large number of rebellions that he had to deal with during his reign. Perhaps one of these rebellions was successful in elevating Samarhet to the throne. Regardless of his legitimacy, his rule would be incredibly disastrous for Egypt. Manetho describes a great disaster befalling Egypt during his reign, while a historical record of his reign describes the destruction of Egypt occurring at the start of his career as a pharaoh. The causes of this massive calamity are unknown, Though some likely candidates include the fallout with his speculated civil war with Onajib, a renewed war with the Iuneti, a serious set of droughts, the onset of a major epidemic of disease, or a combination of these factors. Semerhet was succeeded by Kebe, also known as Ka. Unlike his predecessors, Kebe's reign would be relatively long and stable, and there is no evidence of any prolonged rebellions in Egypt at this time. His reign lasted for 26 years, and he enjoyed multiple victories over the Iuneti in Canaan, though the details of these campaigns, or really any details about his reign, are scant. What is known is that Keba did not produce an heir, and that would ultimately be the downfall of his reign. After his death, three powerful nomarchs would compete for the throne of Egypt, and after a bloody civil war, Hotep Sekenwi, the progenitor of the Second Dynasty, would emerge victorious. Join us next week to learn about the outcome of the Civil War and about the fascinating history of Egypt's mysterious Second Dynasty. Thank you for listening to the History of Africa podcast. If you like the show and the free education we provide, then I'd encourage you to support the show. This can be done by a monetary donation to our Patreon, which can be found on our website, historyofafricapodcast.blogspot.com. By giving the show a review on iTunes, or by sharing the podcast to anyone who you think might be interested.